We've just released the entire back catalogue of Send Me to Sleep. Many episodes, which were previously only available to premium subscribers, are now publicly available and completely free, including The Wizard of Oz, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Around the World in 80 Days, and so many more. So be sure to check out our back catalogue, so you never miss out on a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 35 to 38 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 35 The Bridge of Boats Along the western shore of Asia there were many Greek colonies. One of these was called Ionia, and the chief city of the Ionian state was Miletus. The Greeks who lived in these colonies owned, often against their will, the king of Persia as their overlord. In time of war, they were forced to fight for him. In 521 BC, a great monarch named Darius became king of Persia. He added many kingdoms to his dominions during the first nine years of his reign. In 512 BC, he determined to conquer Greece and add it also to his possessions. So he assembled the great army and crossed the Bosphorus, but instead of going west to Thessaly, which lies in the northeast of Greece, Darius turned first toward the north, and crossing the Balkans, he reached the river Danube. Beyond the river, lay a wild and desolate country, the home of the Scythians, who wandered up and down the land, settling now here, now there, as their fancy pleased. The great king, as the Persian monarchs were so often called, bade the Ionian Greeks, who formed part of his army, Throw a bridge of boats across the river. When this was done, he bade them stay to guard the bridge while he marched with the main body of his men into the wild Scythian country. Should he not return in sixty days, Darius told the Ionians that they might break up the bridge and go back to their homes. No sooner had the great king crossed the bridge 
and marched into Scythia. Then his difficulties began. The foe he had come to seek was not to be found. Knowing that they were not strong enough to face Darius in battle, the Scythians had driven their herds far into the desert, while they themselves, like shadows, dogged the steps of the Persian army. Two months passed, and still the king had not been able to make the enemy fight. Their shadowy forms were sometimes seen, but they were never near enough to be attacked. Darius was unwilling to own that his expedition had been useless. Yet his men were sick from cold, and their provisions were nearly at an end. So he had almost made up his mind to order the retreat. But while he still hesitated, the story tells that the Scythians sent one of their number to the great king, carrying with him as gifts a bird, a mouse, a frog, and five arrows. The Persians demanded the meaning of these strange gifts, but the messenger had no answer to give. He had been but bidden to give them to the great king and return to his people. Then Darius called together his council to consider what the offering might betoken. The king himself thought that the presents were to show that the Scythians were ready to surrender, for on it the mouse found its home, their water, for in it dwelt the frog. The bird was a symbol of their war steeds, and with the arrows showed that they were willing to lay down their arms. Darius was satisfied with his own explanation, but one of his counsellors thought that the gifts had quite a different meaning. O Persians, he cried, listen to my word so wise, for unless ye become as birds and fly up into the heaven, or go down like mice beneath the earth, or become frogs, leap into the lake, ye will not escape being shot by these arrows. As he listened to these alarming words, the king thought that after all, perhaps this was the true meaning of the gifts. So he determined to return to Danube. But the sick men and the beasts of burden were left behind when the army set out, for they could not march as quickly as Darius wished. The groaning of these miserable men and the cries of the animals were heard by the Scythians who soon discovered what had happened 
and set out in pursuit of Darius and his army. Now the Ionians in charge of the bridge had long been tired of waiting for the return of the great king. He had perished, they said to one another, and it would be well for them to break up the bridge and return to their homes. Those who longed most to throw off their allegiance to the Persians muttered that even if the king had not already perished, he would soon do so, if he reached the Danube without provisions, to find the bridge was no longer there. Miltiades, an Athenian, was strongly in favour of withdrawing, but Histaeus, tyrant of Miletus, begged the Ionians to remain, for Darius would come back, of that he felt certain. Then, turning to the other tyrants, he cried, O ye tyrants, be sure of this, that if we leave the Persians to perish, the men of our cities will rise up against us, because it is the king who strengthens us in power, and if ye die, neither shall I be able to rule Miletus, nor you in those cities which ye are tyrants. Then the other tyrants agreed with Histaeus that it would be for their own good to wait for the king. Chapter 36 Darius Rewards Histaeus Meanwhile, a band of Scythians had reached the banks of the Danube. The Ionians had already loosed some of the boats on the farther side, that the enemy might think the bridge was useless, and they, seeing this, and thinking it would be impossible for Darius to cross the river, turned back to meet him. But that same night, after a terrible march, the great king reached the river unnoticed by the Scythians. He saw at once that there was no boat on his side of the river. Had the Ionians gone home and left him to fall into the hands of his enemy? Then he bade one of his men, who was noted for the strength of his voice, to call aloud for Histaeus and Miletus. No sooner was this done than an answer shouted back, and Histaeus sent in haste to restore the bridge of boats. When the boats were secure, Darius with his weary army crossed to the other side and was greeted with every token of loyalty by the Greeks. The king was grateful to Histaeus when he heard that it was he who had persuaded the other tyrants to await his return. 
after the sixty days had passed, and he bade him ask for whatever he wished. Now the tyrant longed to build a strong city, far from the control of the Persian power, so he asked for land in the country called Thrace, which stretched north of Macedon to the river Danube, and Darius granted his request. But Megabazus, the general of the great king, did not trust Histeus, and when he came to Sardis, where the king's court was, he said to Darius, O king, what hast thou done? Thou hast given to a Greek who is wise and crafty a city in Thrace, where there is much timber for building ships and blades for oars and mines of silver, and round it there are many people, both Greek and barbarian, who will take him for a chief and do his will by night and by day. See then that he make not war against thee in times to come. Darius feared lest Megabasus was right, and he determined to send for Histeus and keep him at his own court. Yet as Megabasus might have made a mistake, the message the king sent to the Greek was a kind one. Oh, Histeus, said the king, I have pondered it well, and I find none who is better minded to me and to my kingdom than thou art. This I know, for I have learnt it, not by words, but in deed. And now I propose to do great things. Come, therefore, to me in any wise, that I may entrust them to thee. These words pleased Histeus. It seemed to him that the great king was treating him even as one of his counsellors. But when he reached the king's court and was told what the commands of Darius were, he was not so well content. Oh, Histeus, said the king, there is nothing more precious than a wise and kind friend and I knew that this thou art to me. So now thou must leave Miletus and the new city which thou hast built, and come with me to my court at Susa. The Greek found it hard to hide his anger and disappointment. Rather would he be tyrant at Miletus, or ruler in his new city, than a favoured courtier at Susa. Aristagoras, the brother-in-law of Histeus, was now made tyrant of Miletus, where Darius appointed his own brother, Artaphernes, to be ruler of Sardis.
Chapter 37 Isteus Shaves the Head of His Slave For a few years after Histaeus was summoned to Susa, the Greek cities in Asia showed no disloyalty. But about 500 BC, the people of Naxos, an island in the Aegean Sea, rose and expelled the nobles from their city. This was the beginning of a war between Greece and Asia, known as the Ionian Revolt. The nobles, when they were turned out of Naxos, went to Aristagoras, tyrant of Miletus, to beg him to help them to punish the rebels and to gain possession of the island. Aristagoras knew that alone he was not strong enough to regain Naxos from the nobles, but he said he would ask Artaphernes, the Persian ruler in Sardis, to help him. So Aristagoras went to Sardis and begged Artaphernes to give him a hundred ships to sail against Naxos, promising if he would do so, to reward him with money and with gifts. Artaphernes offered, if Darius would consent, to give not only a hundred, but two hundred ships. The great king bade his brother do as he thought well, so two hundred ships, under the command of Megabatus, was sent from Sardis to join Aristagoras in his expedition against Naxos. The two leaders, Aristagoras and Megabatus, had not sailed far together when they quarrelled, and it was because of this quarrel that the plans of Aristagoras went awry. One night Megabates found that no watch had been sent on one of the ships belonging to Aristagoras. He was so angry with the captain for being careless that he ordered his head to be placed in one of the oar holes in the side of the vessel. When this was done, the unhappy man could do nothing to set himself free but with hanging head he was forced to gaze into the water. When Aristagoras found what Megabates had done, he went at once to ask him to set the culprit free. This Megabates refused to do, and the tyrant himself released the captain. To have his authority flouted, in this way made Megabates angry, but when he would have spoken, Aristagoras proudly bade him be silent, saying, Did not Artaphernes send you to serve under me? Perhaps it would have been wiser to allow the Persian to speak, 
For now his anger smouldered in his heart, and he resolved to be revenged on Aristagoras. He sent a messenger to Naxos to warn the citizens that an enemy was at hand. The Naxians at once strengthened their walls and brought provisions into their city, so that when Aristagoras arrived, he found to his astonishment that the citizens had been warned and were ready to resist an attack. For four months the Greeks and Persians besieged Naxos, but all their efforts to take the city were in vain. Then, their money and their provisions having come to an end, Aristagoras was forced to order the fleets to withdraw. The tyrant was now in a great trouble. He had neither gold nor gifts to give to Artaphernes as he had promised. He had wasted Persian money on a useless expedition. He had made Megabates his enemy. What would Darius say when he heard these things? Aristagoras was afraid that the king would no longer allow him to be tyrant of Miletus. It seemed to Aristagoras that the only way to save himself from disgrace was to persuade the Greeks in Asia Minor to revolt against Darius and himself to become their leader. Now, just at this time, Hysteus was more than ever determined to escape from the court of Susa. He thought if Aristagoras would but incite the Greeks to rebel, Darius would send him back to Miletus to restore order to the city. So while Aristagoras was still hesitating about the citizens, a slave was shown into his presence. He came from Histaeus and said that his master had bidden him tell Aristagoras to shave off his hair and look at the message that was branded on his head. This was a strange way to send a message, but Histaeus had been unable to think of any other way to tell Aristagoras what he wished to do. So he had himself first shaved the head of his slave and branded on it certain signs which meant that the tyrant was to revolt against the Persians. He had waited only until the slave's hair had grown again, when he had at once sent him to Miletus. When Aristagoras looked at the slave's head and learned that Histaeus encouraged him to revolt, he hesitated no longer. He determined to rouse the Ionian Greeks and he began with his own city, Miletus. When he had assembled the citizens, 
he told them that the time had come to throw off the Persian yoke. He then gave up his position as tyrant that Miletus might be made into a democracy. The example of Miletus was quickly followed by many other cities, and the Greeks were soon in open rebellion against Darius. Chapter 38 Sardis is destroyed. The Ionians knew that they would not be able to throw off the Persian yoke without help from their kinsfolk in Greece. So Aristagoras was appointed to go to Sparta to beg King Cleomenes to help the Ionians, who were of the same race as were he and his people. When Aristagoras reached Sparta, he tried to tempt the king to help the Ionians by telling him of the wealth he might gain from it. After Artaphernes was conquered at Sardis, it would, he said, be an easy matter to go to Susa and seize the treasures of the king. He then showed Cleomenes a thing he had never seen before, a map engraved in bronze. Aristagoras pointed out to him all the countries he might make his own, if he would aid the Ionians in their revolt. The king listened and looked, then he dismissed the Greek, promising to think over the matter. In three days he sent for Aristagoras and asked him how long it took to journey from Ionia to Susa. Three months, answered the messenger. O oh, stranger, then said Cleomenes, depart from Sparta before the sun goes down. Thou art no friend to the Lacedaemonians when thou seekest them to lead three months' journey from the sea. In spite of the king's command, Aristagoras still tarried in Sparta. He had made up his mind that he would see Cleomenes once again ere he left the country. So one day, taking an olive branch in his hand as a sign of peace, he went to the king's house. He found Cleomenes alone with his little daughter, Gorgo, a child about eight years old. Aristagoras begged the king to send his daughter away, but Cleomenes said, Pay no heed to the child. Then the Greek tried to bribe the king to send help to Ionia. Ten talents he offered, twenty, thirty, but in vain. 
forty, fifty. Surely thought Aristagoras, the king would be won by fifty talents. But at that moment, little Gorgo interfered. Father, she cried, the stranger will corrupt you unless you rise up and go. Cleomenes listened to the child's words and knew that they were wise. He rose and left the room, and Aristagoras knew that he had been beaten by the little princess. But although Sparta would not help, Athens might. So Aristagoras went to the beautiful city and found that the Athenians were willing to sell twenty ships to aid of the Ionians. These ships, said Herodotus, were the beginnings of evil both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. In 498 BC, the Athenian fleet was ready. It sailed across the Aegean, and the troops landed at Ephesus, where they were joined by the Ionians. Together, they marched upon Sardis. Artaphernes saw that he could not hope to hold down the town against the force that was approaching. So he left the city to be plundered, while he was a small band of soldiers took refuge in the Acropolis. As they met with little resistance, the Athenians at once began to pillage the town. One of the soldiers set fire to a house, and as many of them were made of wickerwork, while all the roofs were thatched, the flames spread quickly through the city until Sardis was destroyed. Then the Greeks, loaded with plunder, began to march back to Ephesus. But on the way, they were met by a troop of Persians and defeated. The Athenians now determined to go home. Aristagoras begged them to stay, but they paid no heed to his request, and hastening to the shore, they embarked and set sail for Athens. Nor did the Athenians take any further share in the Ionic revolt. But they had already done enough to rouse the anger of Darius, the great king knew that it would be easy to punish Aristagoras and the Ionians. As for the strangers who had burned Sardis, one of his capital towns, they, whoever they were, should suffer most heavily. He was told that the strangers were the Athenians. The Athenians? Who are they? he demanded haughtily. And when he had been told, he sent for a bow and shot an arrow high into the air, 
saying as he did so, O Zeus, suffer me to avenge myself on the Athenians. He then bade one of his slaves say to him three times each day as he sat at dinner, O king, remember the Athenians. Meanwhile, Aristagoras saw that there was little chance of revolt being successful against the forces of Darius, so like a coward rather than like a brave leader, he deserted those whom he had encouraged to rebel and fled to Thrace. Here, while besieging a town, he was slain. <laughs> 